0: Hi, good morning. It's Sunday morning still, and Yomishalayim, I'm excited, and uh, I don't know what happened in Israel. I hope nothing happened bad there. Anyhow, uh, I'm going to do Double Z Off in Part 4. I know it sounds funny, but I'm very surprised, happily surprised that people are interested in this, and people writing about it, and and sponsoring, and so forth. Uh, So it looks like you hit on an unexpected vein that people are interested in this unusual person. The famous W.P. Hoffman, who maybe will be a little more famous now. Um, I suspect that there's a layer out there, a certain elite of people that know about this. And they're the ones behind this. But it doesn't matter. Let people know. So, today's podcast, which I want to talk about Hoffman as the historian. is th- a completely different department. He's, this is not about Bible criticism. That's what I did last time. It's not about Charleston Chivas. It's not, you know, there's a complete. he has a different departments, And, Depending on how much time I have today, we'll see where we are in an hour. Um, <clears throat> Ali can talk totally or at least half of what I want to say about this Hoffman as a historian of rabbinic literature, which is unusual. We don't find Gedolim, Big Rabbis, Shashibis and that sort of thing, uh, assuming the role of a genuine historian. I don't mean art scroll history, I mean a genuine historian of... Uh, of rabbinic literature, especially he became the, uh, an, an expert in the history of Tanaitic literature. Now, Already, I'm sure I've lost a couple of people, meaning that what's Katz talk, talking about? Hogufa. You know, this is something that the, the yeshivas and all, generally speaking, uh, are not go-race and all that, uh, and therein lies the story in itself. But before I move on, I want to say that today's talk is being sponsored uh, by Davidsvim Maybroch, who introduced himself. Uh, online, and the fact that we're doing W.C. Hoffman, and here's a guy writing named W.C. Maybrook tells you he comes from a family where they're fans of W.C. Hoffman, okay? Uh, and he says this, this uh, talk today is being sponsored in honor of my mother, Dr. Dr. Hani Maybrook, who has a passion for Jewish history and Tannitic literature. Look at that. And named me after W.C. Hoffman. So I don't know Mrs. Maybrook's mother, but if she was so much into it that she named her son after W.C. Hoffman, she's really into it okay, uh, and uh, I was also surprised, happily surprised, that WC Maybach told me that he's read up on this stuff, the stuff that you need to read, the 3D H and the uh, other works, in uh, KBY, Rabbi Blachman showed it to him, which was impressive to me. Okay, so let me move on, <clears throat> let's see where we go with this. <laughs> Basically, they're talking about something that most people are not familiar with, and that's has to do with the rise of historicism in the 19th century. When I do any talk, or any history at all, history is all about context. I don't know if you realize that. That's all history is. Um, Not antiquarianism, but history. History is putting things in a context. You know, if I say like this, Reuven shot Shimon yesterday in front of Shoal. Oh, so... But there's no context. Why? What? Reuven must be a bad guy. Now watch this. Rubin shot Shimon yesterday in front of Shol, because Shimon was running after him with a, with a meat cleaver t- trying to, to to chop his little daughter, Rubins' little daughter, his head in half. Oh, okay. Now I have a context. Maybe I'll do a little more context. Rubin actually was a pusher, and he got Shimon hooked on drugs. As a result of that, Shimon went crazy and tried to, oh, now I have more context. You see, the fact itself doesn't mean anything. The fact that Rubin shot Shimon, I shouldn't say it doesn't mean anything, but it doesn't, have meaning without the context. So history is not facts. History is providing the context for it, okay? History is providing the context. By the way, suppose I had the scenario I just laid out. So Reuven was a pusher. He got Shimon on the drugs. Shimon tried to kill the kid and Reuven blew his head off. Is Reuven guilty or not? Ah, interesting question. Interesting question. You already have a, a debates among the historians, you get it? <laughs> you see? That's really what history is about. I know people don't realize that unless you're in the field, but that's that's what, it's not just about the past. It's about the past within the context. So let's get to what we're talking about today. One of the things about Hoffman was uh, his role, you know, the Bible criticism, very important part. Also equally important, but completely, non, completely ignored by the She-World, is his role as a historian, of rabbinic literature. So when I say Rabbinic literature, I mean Tanoin Memorain. In the case of Hoffman, I'll say Tanoin. Okay? Now, this has to do with the context. He was born in the 1800s. The 1800s is very important because the that's when uh, the Western world came up with historicism, which has several meanings, but the way I'm using it is historicism, that you don't... Um, well, hold on for a second. I just pulled it up online, but they don't have any good definitions the way I'm using it. Historicism would mean that for the first time, people said, if you want to talk about the past, bring a raya. Prove it. Don't just say you heard from somebody, but try to be methodologically sound and be transparent and have as much as you can do with science as possible. At the end of the day, history can never be scientific, although they didn't realize it at the time in the early 1800s. And uh, you can't get all the evidence, obviously. You can't get all the facts. I won't go into that right now. But let me put it this way. If you make a statement about the past, show me your proof. If your proof is strong, then I will accept it strongly. If your proof is schwach, then I will have doubts about it. You see, things like that. I can believe it, not believe it. Don't use the voice of proof and say factuality that this happened, unless you can back it up. Where's your uh, documents, uh, the ancient stuff, you know, things like that. Bring a proof. Now, before eighteen hundred, let's say, you didn't really have historicism. People wrote about the past. They heard a legend. They didn't hear a legend. It was, they heard a mesora. This was passed down. That passed. They, they, they read into things, whatever. And people, you know, let's put it this way: this was called history. You read. By the way, there are very many famous works of classical and and early modern history like that, that are really interesting and good, but they're not really historical, unless they're really supported by facts. And when I say facts, to the degree that you have facts behind you, so it's stronger. To the degree you have fewer facts behind you, it's weaker. And don't get angry if somebody slugs you up, because that's not science. Science is I put out a, a theory or something like that. If somebody can bring evidence or challenge what I'm saying, Uh, With a tufta, so to speak, I have to be honest enough to say, like this, okay, I guess what I said was wrong. You see? So, history started to be thought of in those terms only around 1800, 1810, first in Germany and it spread elsewhere. And it was exciting because people then said, now we're going to rewrite history in, in the sense of what we have evidence for. And what we don't have evidence for, we're going to say, we don't have evidence for it. So if I say that there was a guy named King Henry VIII, I'll bring you, you know, documents and evidence. If I say there was a guy named King Arthur, I don't have any documents. So then I have to say like this, there's no historical proof that King Arthur ever existed. Maybe he did, maybe didn't. doesn't seem so. We know all the kings, whatever. He's not there. Shema means he's not there. You know, if, you, if tomorrow you find proof that he was there, I'm willing to change my mind. It's not a question of getting angry. I have to be scientific. Be objective. That's all associated with the historicism, okay? Now, by the way, this caused a lot of problems for religions, the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims, because once you do like that, there's no historical evidence that there was a Moshe and Alvar Mitzigakum, and so on and so forth, or Jesus or Mohammed or any kind of stuff, you see? That had to do with a lot of trouble that caused religions in the 19th century. That's what happened with historicism. And Jewish kids who went to German universities, and eventually all the universities, that's how you're taught. You can't say this happened because somebody told me that, or my parents told me that, or my rabbi told me that, or my galach told me that. Because I say, where's the evidence? Like I say, prove to me that Avraham existed. If not, shut up. Now, if you say like this, I believe, that's a different story. But don't say, I know. This is a whole new sprach. Jews never thought like this. Christians never thought like this. Muslims never thought like this. And Adi Yom HaZeph from Jews don't think like this. From Christians don't think like this. And from Muslims don't think like this. But the scientific world thinks like that the academic world, thinks like that. And using the academic voice, if you want something accepted by everybody, you have to back it up with historical evidence. That's what I mean with the new historicism. So if somebody says, there was a guy named David Hoffman who lived in the 1800s, the Christians, the Muslims, the the Martians can't deny it because I'll show you the proof. We have the evidence, we have the documents. Unless you start doing like this, all the documents are a big fake, you know, Obama doesn't have a, a a birth certificate. You know, you can go that whole business. They never landed on the moon. I mean, I know people like that. It's all a big fake. But if you go push up shot, you have your evidence. You have your evidence. You know if You have your evidence. There was a Hitler. I wish there wasn't. But there are evidence is there was a Hitler. You see? On the other hand, there wasn't a blue blue because <laughs> there's no evidence. He said, "I heard there was a blue blue." No, no, no. That's what I mean when I say historicism. Okay. Now, when that happened. The Europeans started writing their own history. It was very intoxicating. Now they get the old records and they try to clear away the myths and the legends and this and to get what, like the Germans said, how things really were. And they went looking at all the archives and in the royal castles and places like that to find the physical documents from the past. And, you know, the army records such as exist, if they existed and the diaries and so forth and so on. And many heroes became unheroes and many unheroes became heroes. Based on the evidence and so forth and so on. Now, the Jewish people, the firm world, let's say up to 1800 approximately, right? More or less, certainly up to 1750, was in the old way. If something's in a safer, it happened. If we have an old chronicle, like for example, the safer Kabbalah, which was written by one of the rivets, and it says there were four captives on the ship, like we did the other a month ago, two months ago, it happened. Right? On well, 19th century, they'll say, how do you know the book's true? Just because a guy named Reif wrote it in a book, the, how do you know it's true? You see like that. Uh, and, you know, you can always say like this, how do you know it's not true? Once we get to that level of argument, how do you know it's true, how do you know it's not true, it's not so stark anymore. You see? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe I can bring evidence that it's not true. This whole new discourse didn't exist, I would say, roughly speaking, before 1800. That's the century Hoffman grew up in. Now, it didn't hit the from world because in the 1600s, 1700s especially the very narrow um, Ashkenazic Jewish culture had its heyday. That's the era of Gamar, 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 fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hundreds, and Ashkenaz is where where the main community was. So the Jews were in intensive cultural insularity, and when I say cultural insularity, I don't I mean not only external, but also internal. Not only was it that Jews had no shaykhs any outside culture other than their own, didn't speak any other languages and so forth, but even the definition of Jewish culture was extremely narrow and deliberately so. Like I said, Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. So it was the era of great scholars in Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. Take, for example, the 1700s, right off the top of my head. You know, you got the Notre Dame, the Pnei the Shagasaryeh, you know, like that. That kind of thing. Well, gone, you know, that sort of thing. But as far as history is concerned, and the past, and the facts of the past, and the context, and how it relates to Gaisha cultures, because it did, the Jews lived somewhere, not in their own country, and so forth. This was like, you know, of no interest. There was no cultivation. But when it started with the Goyim, it didn't take too long for it hit the Jews. But it hit the Mosquilum first. Okay. In other words, the 1800s is when started to happen that people came not from. But there's all kind of ways of responding to the modernity and becoming not from. Extremely not from, moderately not from, partially not from, and so forth and so on. If you want, I could flip it. I could say extremely from, moderately from, you know, middle, like that. Okay? Now, the Goyish world, especially the Protestant world, as I said the other day, Protestant uh, German universities, even though they used the language of objective study of the past, but obviously they brought their own prejudices to it. In the early 19th century, they weren't recognizing that they brought their prejudices to it. That's how intoxicated they were with their own discoveries of methodology and led to false feelings of, uh, as I say, objectivity and so forth. And uh, in the later 19th century, the German Protestant historians started to be self-critical, and then they realized that they're bringing a lot of their prejudice into it. This a whole field for those who are deep in the history of history, historiography. They call it the Christ of, of German Historicism. But well, we won't go there. Let it be that in the time we're talking about, uh, the discipline of history is very interesting. And the first Jews who started to go to college, first of all, we're hit by this stuff like a two-by-four. Because so let's say I'm a front guy, and then I go to university. Then I hear the Bibles, baloney's all put together at different times and places. And the whole rabbinic literature is a bunch of junk. And the rabbis stole it from here and then and the other. And anyway, the rabbis were retards and this and that and the other. You know, this is what they said in the university. You're hearing from the big professors. Lots of Jewish kids said, gee, I'm taking my yarmulke I, mean, I guess everything I learned at home was baloney. And the mamas either converted or totally went off the derch. I mean, that's what happened a lot. But there were some who said, we still want to be Jewish. On the other hand, we want to incorporate, you know, the historicism to study the Jewish past and help us understand the Jewish culture better, even though we're not going to be uh, fundamentalists. We're not going to really believe in Torah's Moshe and certainly Torah Shabbat, all the rest of it. But we want to understand it, you know. You know. Anyway, uh, for purposes of simplification, let's let's call it the, the uh, Reform and Conservative. I'm simplifying. So the Reform is like this. The whole thing was baloney you know, and we have to re- study its history in a deconstructive manner. But they were also what we would call conservative. And conservative would be that we accept the basic axioms of historicism, so we can't really be fundamentalists. On the other hand, we are very committed to the Jewish past, and historicism even tells you that what an object is is what its past was. So you can't say like the Reform, oh, We've been guiding it wrong for 2,000 years. Really, you can be Michal Shabbos. This whole idea that you have to keep Shabbos was just a big mistake made back where long ago. You know, Now we, the reformer, are hopping the the real thing. The conservative type person would say like this, it's, it's not imaginable Judaism without Shabbos. That's what Judaism has been. So I have to accept that that's what it is. And Koshras is just a part of Judaism. That's the Jewish culture. And that's why we still should do it, because otherwise you wouldn't be Jewish. Where Shabbos and Kostris came from is a different story. Maybe this historian will believe it's some pagan Zach or somebody dreamed it up or whatever. It doesn't even matter. That's how they talk. It doesn't matter. We still do it anyway. So you have a strange situation where you have nominalism but not fundamentalism. This is what eventually morphed into conservative Judaism. Right? Uh, and I want to point out that the conservative Jews, especially in the beginning, held that they're Orthodox. They're like open Orthodox, like Abbey Weiss. You Weiss. Know, they're left wing of Orthodox. That's how they regarded themselves. And there were many Orthodox Jews that agreed that they were the left-wing of Orthodox. It was Sam Serainville, and people like that, who called them out and said, no, you're not left-wing Orthodox. You're over, over Niagara Falls. You know, you're somewhere else. You have your own religion. Actually, you're kind of reformed. This is the thing that was going on at the time W.C. Hoffman, our hero, was growing up. Okay? Now, the main places where this... Ha- Let me put it this way. The three big guys of conservative Jews, they didn't call it conservative They did not call it that. But what eventually emerged as this there are three big guys, two of them were from Galicia and one from Germany. And that's what happened. In Galicia, you had Nachman Krachmal, and you had Shlomi Huda Rappaport, Scheer, who was the son-in-law that could us and all that. He helped write Davni and Milun. And in Germany, you had Zachary Frankel. And these are names that once upon a time were very famous. of people never heard of them anymore. Uh, They had their five minutes of fame, and then they're gone. They certainly were not accepted by the Torah world, even by the non-form world. Nobody knows about them unless you study in Jewish Theological Seminary or whatever it is, because their scholarship is now, you know, passe, because we're in the 21st century, not the 19th century anymore. But everybody knows that they're the ones who started what we would call the modern discipline of Jewish history. You know what I'm saying? What I'm doing right now, which is a Jewish history podcast, the discipline of Jewish history for better or worse, it goes back to the early 1800s, and to these guys in Galicia and in Germany. Okay? Now, the thing is like this. All three of these guys, Nachman Krochmob and Scheer and Zechariah Frankel, me the chacham, they just were. you got to get over it. Do You know how to learn. Matter of fact, I'll say it again. Rapport, you know, when the Katsos died, he was his son-in-law, he published and put all the horrors on the Avni So I'm just telling you right now, you can wipe the floor with a lot of people learning. That's what it is. Nevertheless, they were profoundly influenced by, and Zachary Frank was also a big Tom of you Can't take it away. Now, uh, what I mean is these guys did no shahs. You, you, you know, even Shulchan Aruch. You, you, you just have to understand that. Now, uh, but they weren't fundamentalists, not really. They're conservative. Now, if you ask them, do you believe in Torah Moshe? No, let, let me be exact. Do you believe that God dictated the Torah to Moshe Rabenu? they would say like this, let's change the subject. <laughs> you in other words, they didn't want to say that they personally didn't believe, it, but they were very uncomfortable saying that because that from they still were. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to talk about that. On the other hand, Fuke the reform, who said, yeah, there's no Taurus motion, there's no, to- no, you know, the reformer totally radical. That's Geiger and these guys. So I'm taking you back to the 19th century in a completely different time but what they call Sturm und Drang, the Sturm and uh, Stress when the Jewish intellectual world in some places it was undergoing profound transformations and the yeshivas just were in a bubble of their own. Right? In a bubble of their own. Now, um, this didn't hit, let's say, for example, Lithuania yet. Uh, but if you're talking about the early 1800s, this stuff was coming out in the, in the middle 1800s. Now, these conservative scholars, I'll call them that, uh, had this feeling, as I said before, I don't want to talk about Chomishl. Let's just not talk about it. But, Shas, why not? And I'll tell you where it's coming from. This is a very interesting conversation I'm having in light of the fact that it's the week before Shavuos. Because really, 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 what they were interested in is what exactly happened on Shavuos. And I'm using the word Shavuos as a catchphrase. What they really meant was what happened between Hashem and Moshe. So, let's, let's use the words 40 years because Hashem and Moshe has a 40-year business. Right? and without getting into all the different arguments Torah Subanitna, Torah Megillah this, that, and the other and whether you mean specific, you know, because Shavuos is only to pronouncing the Ten Commandments, then comes another 40 days, and like I did last week in Parshish Bahar, Kurnian Ramban then comes a separate sort of Torah and Vayikra, and so forth so, over the course of 40 years, everybody whatever your Rishon is will say, that's when Hashem committed, uh, communicated to the Torah and Moshe Benin Let's say these guys are interested, but they're interested in the Toshiba Pet part, okay? Not the Toshiba Pet part. I'll say it again. If you really ask them, do you really, really believe, like the Ramam says that the whole thing, they say, let's change the subject. But, you know, publicly they would say, agree with it. But what about the Toshiba Pet? There, everybody knows that the Toshiba Pet is radically different than the Toshiba South. Whereas the Tershah B'sab, there's a text. And you could say, Hashem dictated this text. Masha'en came. And you know, when Moshe came down from the mountain, or however, however it happened over the course of 40 years, by the time he died, he said, this is what Hashem told me to write down. And here it is. And he made copies for everybody, as we know, before he died. But what did he do with the Tosha B'Apeh? So that's already trickier. In other words, now I'm asking a historical question. What exactly happened to Tershah B'tzab? One thing is clear there was no YouTube, there was no podcast. Moshe didn't come down and say, Here, I have a recording. I was up in the mountain, let's say, for example, or I was in Oahel Moe to one of these places, and me and Hashem had a conversation, and I recorded it. You see, nothing like that happened. We don't say it happened. So, I, we don't know exactly. All we know is Moshe Kibble Termisin, I'm sorry, Shua Shua is and so forth. So, the way we understand that. Even the from that of from would be Moshe was given, you know, uh, uh, content. And then he said it over his way. Right? In other words, I'm not saying he perverted it. But I'm saying it wasn't an exact text. The, the very definition of Torah means it's not an exact text. Because many make this mistake. If you think it's an exact text, it's just for some reason had a taboo of writing it down. You missed the whole point of Toshua Ba'abim. Um, that's a little bit confusing but not really and so the question then becomes so how did it get passed down and all that, I mean did Moshe just say poems, did he say phrases how did he communicate it to Yeshua you know there's a whole system, first Yeshua then Aaron's sons and all that stuff, the way around Melissa. but you know what exactly happened these are questions of historians of the Torah Shabbat you see such a thing goes. Now, a firm gospel, like this. who cares? That's not fair. A historian cares. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing true about it. As a matter of fact, everybody should care. I don't say you have an answer because there is no real answer because Moshe didn't write out the way it happened. He didn't tell anybody, as far as we know, exactly the way it happened. We don't know precisely how it happened. So this is something that preoccupied the historians. Moreover, we know that Moshe starts out you know, with his conversations with God, however, that took place. But it doesn't turn into a Mishnah until much, much later. It's a millennium later. Uh, more. Uh, if Moshe is like in the 1200s BCE, roughly speaking, and the Chazal is around the year one or the year 100, so you're talking, you know, uh, 1300 years later, approximately, something like that. That's a long time. So, how exactly it get transmitted? And was it word for word? And was it not word for word? And, you know, what's going on over here? Now, the Chazal and the Gemarn never give a clear shot of what happened. There are snippets here and there. And so, the person who wants to be a historian of this has a tough job. On the other hand, inquiring minds want to know, here you are, Krochmal or, or Rapport or one of these guys, what exactly happened? You know, moreover, did this happen in Ivory Tower? Did most urban or his successors who lived among, especially when they went into exile, were they unaffected by the Gaija uh, uh, thing around them? What is exactly going on? That is a huge topic. I can only touch on the Rashi problem to set the background for Hoffman. Now, um, let me think. The, the, this question... Roughly speaking, in rough outline, uh, popped up with the carites. You get it? In other words, we came to the early Middle Ages. The Gemara's finished around the year 500, 600, something like that. <clears throat> Nobody knows exactly. By the time the Gemara started to spread, so the argument was this is the Tereshul pat Or, let's put it this way, we don't have a tape recording of Moshe Rabanus, so it's the closest you can get to the Tereshul pat Right? When you read the Gemara, Talmud Bavli, and that sort of thing, the, Mimran, the argument generally was, this is the closest you should get to what happened between Hashem and Moshe. Therefore, it's incumbent upon you, the from Jew, if you want to do God's will, to follow what the Torah, what the Gemara says. Right? So it may be explicit in the Chumash. It may not be explicit in the Chumash. Don't say in the Chumash anything about the Kazayis. But I'm going But the Torah Shavapet. it's in the Gemara. So, okay. There was a... When this happened... And the Gemara comes out to 500, 600, 700, it's in those centuries when the Talmud Babli started to spread and obviously changed the way practice was done in many communities which had different practices prior to the Talmud Babli. And that's a whole story by itself. I won't go into that right now. So it was a blowback. what was called the Karoyim, And they said, where does all this come from? This is baloney. And these rabbis are making it up as they go along. So, they challenged the entire notion of the Toshua in the sense that the Gemara represents that. The carries didn't necessarily say there was no Toshua per se, but the Gemara ain't it. And in this context, in the 10th century, in North Africa, when they had all these debates between Jew type A and Jew type B, because they were all over the place, the, the Karaim and the Rabbonim, Rabbonim, Rabbonite Jews are the, like us, believe in the, the Gemara. So they wrote to the uh, one of the gonim, Rav Gong in the 980s, the late 10th century. And they said, help us out. What's going on over here? We don't know the history of the Gona. The basic question of, of how did all this happened." And Rav Gong wrote back a long answer. And it's very, very famous. And he basically gives... Um, the, the Remember, he's he's a, a, a gong, That means he's a Rosh Hashiva in uh, Pumadisa, I think. So Suram Pumadisa were the two places. And Suram Pumadisa were the two places. He's given the party line. He represents Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. He was the head of the place where the Talmud probably was. The party line. And it's called the Igeris Roshirogon or the Chilis Um uh, It's long, it's in Aramaic. And he gives the whole business as he understands it clearly by 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 being like a little proto-historian and looking in different places in Shas and also passing on certain misoras that were in the yeshivas from Puppetisa and he gives his understanding of how the b'alpad developed and eventually turned into the written text that we have today. It's very fascinating and uh, it's kind of complex. It so happens I was into this years ago I think I mentioned to you Skipping over a lot of details. The art scroll I I did a translation of it and which was published by the Art School a year ago. I'm actually doing it in my show this year for a show this Night. We're gonna go through it from twelve to five. At least that's my plans. Uh because now it's came out the Art Scroll form with the English, so it'll be easy for people to follow. And uh it's a gunner make so it wasn't easy to translate. And some footnotes and things like that. And that's whole partial by itself. It's a whole genre, it was a, the, 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 there are two versions of it, and whatever it is, this basically is the only, or almost the only, historical source for the history of the Torah pet okay? And uh, I'll speak about it as I go along. There is another thing, the Rambam's version, the beginning of uh, Mishnah Torah, the beginning of the Mishnah, but it's not reliable. The Rambam, for various reasons I don't want really to go into now, he's meaning an anti-carry thing, and he wanted to dumb down things, because the Rambam definitely knew they he got a So you can't really go like the Rambam. But the shri you do. And everybody knows this. It's not, I'm not telling anything. All the historians, whatever, nobody uses the Rambam, everybody uses the shri I'll say it again. These are Roshiba Pumbadisa. Now, um, it's a complex story. Especially that he characterizes the Tereshawal Peb as you taught people like the general principles, I mean, it had to be a... Let me put it this way. What was the yeshiva long, long, long ago? They didn't sit with books. You see what I'm saying? So you have to reimagine the whole Torah enterprise. And he gave kind of an account of how it evolved. And for dumb down purposes, for our purposes at the moment, he talks about the fact that the mission we have today is an evolved document. It starts basically, I'm talking about Shurigam. It starts basically with uh, Rabbi Akiva. Uh, and then it's reworked by uh, Rameir, And then it gives its final reworking by Rehudanasi. So when I look at the Mishnah today, according to this, the original layer is Rabbi Akiva time. It was re-edited, nobody knows exactly how, and added on subtracted to by Rameir time. And then again by Biuranasi. That's what we have. Okay? And then he talks about the other pieces of, of Tanayitic literature your Tosefta, your Michilta to Sifron Sifri. That's the other parts of Tanayitic literature. Talks about them briefly. Now, and then he goes on to talk about the Gemara, and then the Tukufi Zagonim. So if you want to be even a shtickle player in this, don't even open your mouth until you look at Shurugam. That's a, that's that's how it works, okay? You're not even a player, not even a bit part player, to discuss this business until you learn the gears of which is part of Torah literature. That's why the article put it in their intro volume. It's part of Torah literature, and I can assure you, all the Rishonim had it. And like I said, I don't want to get into too much of a discussion. The Ashkenazim had one version, the Sfarim another, but all the Rishonim have this sort of thing, okay? Now, that's all you had by way of historical evidence. But it seems fairly impressive. It wasn't simply poof one day the Toshav appeared. It was a whole evolution process. So these conservative guys, Krochmal and Scary Frankel and Rappaport and a couple others, they tried to give their version, you know, of Shirgun. Frankel especially was interested in uh, the you know going back to the Septuagint, which uh is as you know, takes you in Bayshani period to the time of the early Ptolemies. Do you see in the Septuagint um any traces of the Toshwap? You know, things that pop up later in other literature. There's a whole genre of looking when Josephus and Philo, do you see any parallels or anti-parallels in Chazal? It's that way of looking at history. Nothing wrong with that per se. Okay? Now, in the course of all that. They constructed all kind of imagine theories. I mean, you have to imagine it. That's all you know. You're you, you're putting together based on a small amount of of evidence, and they had constructions of how they thought that the whole thing worked out. You know how it eventually evolved into Mishnayis and the other things like that as well. That is the world that Hoffman was in. Okay, now the things like this, as you if you take the trouble to read these works of Frankel and Rappaport and Krochmal and even Gress a little bit and so forth. There's two ways of, of reacting to this from the firm point of view in 19th century. One was to say like this, anything that a non front person, an apocryphist wrote, I don't have nothing to do with it. You know, it's machmas machmasmias. Don't tell me there's parts in it that are good or bad. It's like a safer terrestrial cost men. They're going to burn it. Hell with it. You know, I'm not interested in anything that a non front person said. Or even having any shaykh said. That was the view of Sanskrit Flourish. Okay? We're not interested in anything these guys are saying. They're bringing all their prejudices to it. Uh, I'm not interested if they say anything that's right or wrong. By definition, it's. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is like this I could be selective. Some of what they say is good, some of what they say is bad. Uh, you know, this is as old as the Tanaim. Some people approved of Reb when he had that attitude towards Acher. And he said, I'm taking the good and not the bad. You know, Achal oh, as a uh, payer of as a Klippa. And others disagreed with him. Lo Yardul self Daito, and so forth. So this tension but how to relate to what I would call non from scholarship or uh, research, you know, is as is, is old as time. One way is to say it like this, Kabbalah Semis me I don't care if the guy said it. If the guy got good proof that sounds like he's historically accurate, good. If not, not. And if it's 50-50, then I'm a cobble to 50% that's good. Then I'm a to 50% that's bad. That's Hoffman. That's Hildesheimer. You see? So within the world of German Orthodoxy, there was in the 19th century, we had this split. Okay? The material Hildesheimer at the end of the day I had a PhD and was interested in what they call the Wissenschaft des Judentums, his interested in this kind of research he had what I would say would be a um, suspicious but reserved attitude towards the, the fruits of modern scholarship and he would say like this let me see what these guys said let me see what these guys said some, if it's good okay, if it's not good, I'll say it's not good, I'll tell you why I think it's not good it's traced to us, right? Now I can tell you Hirsch very strongly this: there's a big difference between Hirsch and Hildesheimer. It's one of the big differences. Their attitudes towards modern Jewish scholarship. And when W.C. Hoffman, our hero, was in college, he his dissertation at this Protestant university where he was in Tubingen was on um, Shmuel, Robin Shmuel. You know, we call Mark Samuel director of the uh, of the Nartea Rabbinical Seminary uh, in Germany, of course. And what he did was to try to put together a scholarly biography of Shmuel, meaning go through a whole shahs, as only Hoffman could. And when I say shahs, you know, I'm running the whole business, and see what you can pick out about Shmuel, and also notice what century he lived in. For example, Shmuel would live in the, in the 200s, in Babel. So what was going on in the 200s in Babel? Oh yeah, the Parthians were now conquered by the Sasanian Persian, by the Iranians. And that led to this and that to the other. You know, in other words, things are going on over there. Didn't live in a vacuum. And see if that's no gay to anything or whatever. <clears throat> in the course of this, so Hoffman, remember he's writing a college dissertation, <laughs> said like this. He said, you know, this is what Krachmal said, this is what Radport said, this part is good, this part is not good. This is what Gret says, here where I disagree with him, here where I agree with him. That is the literature on the subject. You cannot write a dissertation for a genuine university if you don't take into account all the published scholarship on the subject. You don't have to agree with it, right? A guy can say that this is no was a jerk. I say, well, I'll tell you why he's not a jerk. I, I, can, I can disagree with it, but I have to acknowledge that it's out there. Then say, why I disagree with it? Okay, you have to... Defend your position intellectually, academically. So this was his uh, dissertation he got his doctorate for. When they published his a book, so Hurt was uh, enraged that um, that Hoffman would be gurus these guys altogether. Because if I'm gurus, you, if I quote you, then what I'm really saying is like this. Your position is a position. It's not one that I hold up. So there's an old question like this. Can Orthodox Judaism have any kind of dialogue with non-Orthodox Judaism. Dialogue means I respect your position, you respect my position, and now I'll tell you why I happen to hold my position. But if I completely reject your position, it has no legitimacy whatsoever, we can't have a dialogue. You know what I'm saying? I can't have a dialogue with Adolf Hitler. I can't have a dialogue. I can't say, I respect your position. We're so far apart. And Hersch said, that a friend should be so far apart from this sort of thing that you, you, you shouldn't even take them into account. Now, that's a tall order. Hirsch was like that. And in his, you know, community, that you know, he, he pushed that particular line. I won't go into the politics of Frankfurt at that time, but he could do that over there. Uh, Hoffman was different, okay? And, you know, when Hirsch wrote him a whole thing, what happened was his brother-in-law, Hoffman's brother-in-law, was a real firm guy, Hilo Wexler, said, your stuff is trade. Hoffman was a Tammim, and he said, he what I say? saying it's I'll send it to Samson Gabriel Hirsch, and he'll give it out Askama. And Hirsch said, no, your brother is right, it is trade, And that freaked Hoffman out, and he sent it out to other rabbis, like uh, Nathan Marcus Adler in London, I forget who else, maybe the Wurzberger rub. and they said, no, it's not you know, So you had a big tension over this issue, it's one of the famous stories for those who are navel-gazing into the history of the Hildesheimer seminary they always had this tension between the frankfurters on the one hand and the berliners on the other hand so that's who hoffman was and all of his life in his writings he's always glorious what the other one says even though he would argue to slug him up just except when he doesn't okay so once you get into into the business of history you sort of cannot help. I mean, genuine history, academic history. Not the art school history. Actual history. And when you get into that, you can't help but encounter the and, and, and deal with the opinions of people who are not from people you don't agree with. Otherwise, don't be a historian. You get what I'm saying? That's what it was. That's what it was. Now, um, this being the case... So one of the things that preoccupied Hoffman was um, the history of the Torah of pet especially in the context of Tanaitic literature, because that's what Frankel and Gretz and Rappaport and the other guys really were mostly interested in. They were also interested in the Gemara and the Amorim, that is true. But I would say the main thing was, you know, where the Mishnah come from, the Medrash and that sort of thing. They were emphasizing, I would say, the externalist and non-form parts of it. Our hero would be different. But it would entirely be within what we call academic scholarship. And early on in his career, when he started writing, and when he started teaching from 1873 on, so he did write about Bible criticism and all that that I talked about last time, especially uh, Leviticus Vayikra. That's one part of what he was doing. Remember, he was also giving a shear every day, two or three shear. But aside from that, he's also interested in these questions of the specific literary history of the Toshubal Peb, especially, like, say, the origins of Mishnai's and the Tzosefta and all the rest of it. Okay? Now, um, he never wrote a book on it. He wrote a bunch of articles. Right? What's interesting is, uh, for most of the listeners here, you know, as you understand, most of his stuff is in German, because that was the language at that time. And he used to publish these in in journals and in the, the annual reports of the seminary. That's the way it was done at that time. Things like that. Saying so, so easy to get a hold of. However, um the one of the most important of these essays, I saw this many, many years ago in the late seventies. I grabbed it and there is at the bookstore. Somebody named Forsheimer, I don't know him, uh, translated two of his very important essays into English. So it's around if you're actually interested. It's like typed or something like that, but it's fine. And in 1977, and it's called The First Mission, The Controversy of the Tanoim, there's to Mishna. And the other one's called The Highest Court in the San- City of the Sanctuary, which is a fancy way of saying the Sanhedrin and Lishkas of And uh, if you're at all interested in this, and I hope to do this if time permits on on, um, on Shavuot's night. I'll see how long the Eger Shreya takes. Yeah, about five, six hours, you know. So, um, this is an essay he wrote early on, in which he's trying to talk about, he wasn't Mechadish this, the other historians already went into this, even Shreya interest, but his take on what we call the Erster of the first Misha, which means, that when you read the Mishnayis, understand that Rehud nasi didn't write it from scratch, but they're early editions, and you try your best using a scalpel to see the earlier layers, and what can you find by analyzing the language of the Mishnayis, or comparing it maybe to the Joseph and the Meru things like that, and Hoffman's case, even to Josephus and Philo and things like that, to find out the historical layers, if we can possibly tell where this stuff comes from. Okay? And more importantly, how old it is. I not want to say where this stuff comes from, how old it is. And it's very interesting. I remember he says like this at the beginning of the uh, of the essay, Bible criticism is trafe, but Torah Shabbat bad criticism is not trafe. That's what he says that. Criticizing the Torah, and I repeat, criticizing not in the sense of saying something negative. Offering a critical analysis. You understand? Know so, um, objective analysis, will use that word. So, Bible criticism, which seeks to argue that the Torah is not from God, that's trafe. But Mishnah criticism, let's put it that way, is not trafe, Because the Mishnahites, we don't claim the Mishnah comes from Moshe Rabbeinu. Meaning, Moshe did not write the Mishnah. The Nazi wrote the Mishnah, or somebody like that. You get my point? We don't claim that Moshe Rabbeinu literally wrote down the Mishnah. So, somebody else did. There's nothing wrong then, as a historian, he said, for me, to go try to figure out who was the guy that wrote the Mishnah, did it come in several stages, did the verse write a little bit, and so forth and so on. Right? So, uh, as a result, he became, he wrote a lot of articles in this, and he became interested, a major part of his enterprise was the history of the Tannaitic literature. Uh, I use the word Tanaitic literature because the literature of the of the Tannaim is more than just the Mishnah. It, in, you know, at the simplest level, it's also the Tosefta and the Michilta Sifra and Sifri. But there are others as well. And um, he's a major pioneer in this sort of thing. And uh, now, to get down to the nitty-gritty, what Hoffman does is try to say like this, let's read the Mishnahis through Historicist glasses, which is not something most people do in the yeshivas, and color-code it. Uh, can I look at a Mishnah or something like that and say, well, this line is from, I'll just, for, I'll just use for argument's sake, this line is from the hill and Shammai time. That line was added later on in the Rabbi Kiva time. And this word or two was added by something like that. So, in other words, I look at all the Mishnahs and it's blue, it's yellow, it's green, it's red, and so forth. And this would be from the year 100, this would be from the year 150, things like this. Now, all of this is speculative. The same thing with the conservative historians. It's all speculative. Nobody has the originals. So what you're doing is you're you're, you're arguing almost the Gemara style Based on a certain amount of linguistic analysis. You see, historic and linguistic analysis. So, what you're doing is you're tying ink, like they say in Yeshivas, based on this and that and the other, based on this language and so on and so forth. You can tell that this was come from such an era. I'll just give you one example off the top of my head, which is very famous and associated with Hoffman. It's, this week is going to be Shua, so you learn Bikurim. And it says in Bikurim, even Agrippa a would stand in line. Why the heck a grip is a melt? That would be a grip of the first, who uh, was late Second Temple period. And it was a Herodian. In other words, he was a grandson of King Herod, who was a Mamzer and a half. But he's the one who said, Achinoata, you know, the, he was relatively good. So the Chacham, that time, for better or worse, liked him. Why would the Mishnah say even the Melech stands in line, you know, to offer the, the Bakorum? And Hoffman would say like this if you just use the word Melech, why don't you say Shlomo melach stood in line? just to give a baishmah. After all, we say, k'su. elsewhere in the Mishnah, they say you can even eat on, uh, what is it, on, uh, you know, Shabbos, uh, Er uh, Tishmah, Kisuda Shlom amal. Just use it Shlom as a marshal for a king. So why do you say Agrippas? Elamai, whoever wrote this Mishnah is, saw Agrippa the first standing in line with the Bikurim, and this Mishnah, or at least that phrase in the Mishnah, dates from that Kufa. You get it? Uh... How come there's no reference to David Melch? Well, there was no Mishnahis. Or if there was, it hadn't survived something from David Maybe it was some kind of form of the Mishnah. But nothing of that survives. So all of a sudden, you're talking about looking at the text and trying to locate when it happened. And of course, when it happened can affect the Psha and the Mishnah, the authority of it. Of one opinion over the other. So this, as I say before, is totally strange to the Shiba world. And frankly, they never were this out of Except with, with with a few exceptions. And in Hoffman's specific case, he comes up, you know, I am going want to bore you with the details. He comes up with the idea that the Mishnahis that you and I have originates in the Bayashini period in the time of uh Hill and Shammai, There's all kinds of specific arguments to it but I don't think a podcast is the time to go into technical stuff, right? There are others that backdated a little bit more or changed the dates. You know, it's Outhill and Shami's a little bit later. These are the fights of the big scholars of this stuff in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, if you're into it. If anybody's interested in what I'm saying, to whatever degree, one thing you want to do is see if you can get a hold, because it's around, I'm sure you can buy it the Google, of a... Uh, Hoffman's, it's called the first Mishnah. Uh, you, you know, it's online somewhere. I mean, it's, the text is not online to my knowledge by Rabbi Dr. David Hoffman, but you could buy the book, okay? This may be a YU library, it'd be in Lakewood Library, I'm sure. You know, things like that. Very few people look in this sort of thing, and you ask questions that usually are not asked. For example, you look at the Pirkei, obviously, he has that. How come in the first Perk everything's in order? You know, Moshe, Kibble, and it's Game, Game, then you have. Shem Nath then Antigonus Yishsochal, and then this, Zug, and that Zug, and they all go in great order. But later on, the Perkiovas, they're out of order. Like, why is that? You see? And who arranged it that way? Whoever, who? it sounds like, whoever did the first chapter was Plony, and whoever did the second or third chapter was Almoni. So then, because the first guy was interested in doing things in chronological order, and the second one not, at least at first glance. And then you're telling me Perkiovas is put together by different people. And then I asked the question, Okay, if you have different versions of Perkyabas or different parts of it, who was it that stitched it together in the form that we have it today? Then why did they stitch it together this way and all? These are perfectly valid questions. People usually don't go into it. Now, uh, I'll tell you something interesting. One person who was very interested in this was a Sridhish. It's not surprising. He's the successor of Hoffman. see Hoffman was the head of the Hildesheimer seminary when Hildesheimer died. So Hildesheimer died around close to the year 1900, late 1880 late eighteen hundreds. So Hoffman was the Rosh Yeshiva, so to speak for about 20 some years, 20-21 years. Okay? When he died there was he left no success. There was nobody in Germany like him. And so the seminary took a what's his name uh, Abramelia Kaplan from Slobodka who did not have a college education, but he was uh, definitely on the modernist side, very firm. He was there for a couple years. And he made the place more yeshivish, let's put it that way. A little bit more. Although he totally respected Hoffman. But when he died, suddenly, died at a young age, so uh, the Sridh took over. Right? So the dh was more or less the successor of Hoffman. And if you know who the dh was, first of all, he went to the liturist yeshivists, but then he went to Germany and he got very interested in exactly the stuff I'm talking about, and he got himself a PhD. But what he was icing in was precisely this kind of stuff. Possibly he was a, I won't say he's a bigger Talmud Chaham, but they're both huge Talmud Chaham. Now, his 3DH, therefore, is unusual because he could give a tremendous share. He'd been the top guy in Slavagta. On the other hand, he also went into this kind of business shop stuff, even though I'm sure he was quite aware very few people the world out there follow this or or can follow it that he was a wonderful writer and when he died they published the 3dh the Monser of cook in the old edition that's one of the first farm I ever bought way back when I was an old boy and um in two I have it it's it's four volumes I have in two obased gimbal dog and the first part of the 3dh is char uh, and chuvas right in fact the three parts of a and chuvas However, the fourth part, it's not bad print, and the fourth part was the history stuff. Okay? And here hes he has whole essays and more than just that, but I'm talking about what's negated to what I'm talking about today. He has whole essays on, um, how shall I put it? Hoffman type stuff. The history of the Terrible Path. Okay? Uh, he has more than that. Now, in recent years, the 3DH Hasidim, his fans, they are, um, you know, uh, Wine Court, whoever it is, they're putting out, like, nice deluxe editions, Makhon uh, Yushalayim, of the 3DH stuff. No, they're reprinting everything, but in a nicer format. It's actually very nice to read. And when they got the two or three volumes of the Shalseu 3DH, is a better print. It's not Manuka, but it's a better print. So, uh, so I bought it because I like the three days. So I have the old ones that I've stashed away somewhere. I'm having them in front of me on my desk. Those have the new ones. When it came out, I said to myself, "See, they're they're too firm nowadays. They're not going to publish the shop stuff, you know, his stuff on on the history of Chacham uh, Mishnayis and that kind of stuff." I'm happy to say that I was wrong. I saw, I bought also. It's called part a big blue volume. Called Parshanut iunim Mechkarim Chazal, 3D H. Okay, it came out in 2017. And there, they have the uh, the articles. The print is not much nicer, and they have nice footnotes to make it even better. So anybody's interested, this is the volume you want to get, and um, the 3D H. has the whole section. He had a book called Mechkarim which which I do not have. You know, where he goes in this kind of business. But he has a whole section uh, in the book called of Bemishna, And he has, if you're interested at all, anything I've said so far, this subject, this is what you want to read. Our host today, our, our sponsor, they told me he did read it in KBW, which was impressive. And there's three uh, articles called Mekord Mishnah Viderik Sidura. That's number one. The second one is called Shittas. Uh, Yitzig Aizigalei B'cheikra Mishnah. That has to do with the Doris Rishonin, who argued on Hoffman uh, pretty bitterly and not right. And third, he has the where our hero here, the Day Aish, is giving you three book reviews, I might say, or uh, scholarly reviews of the literature of the type that we're talking about. So this reminds me of Zevin, the way he's writing over here. You have to be a gong to be holding this thing to write essays, critical essays. Again, I'm using the word critical in the academic sense. Evaluating the state of the field and what are the rise that this one brought versus that one. And they're fascinating. So this is the kind of thing that anybody with a general education could read and get into. You might not recognize all the names that he quotes over here, but it's very, very interesting if you're in this sort of thing. And what happened, therefore, was that Hoffman... Uh, as I said before, is macabre some of the things that the conservatives say when he held their right. And he argues on other things that he held they're not right. Uh, And he evolved a whole theory, uh, Hoffman did, of how precisely the Mishnahis came to be, the form we have today. And the most important part, as far as I'm concerned, is like this. First came the Medush Halacha, and then later came the Mishnah. I don't mean the text of the Michalta and the Sivir and but that style, okay? And uh, this can be attacked by the Doris Risham. Here, I'm running out of time. Hold it for a second. I had to switch the tapes. I uh, hope I didn't lose my train of thought. But basically, Hoffman uh, has this approach where um, he'll see, let's put it this way, how did the Tarshavap had manifested itself down the centuries before there was beginning of the Mishnah. He learned the Psukim, and the whole shot of Tarshavap, this is going to sound funny, the people are not familiar with Shriyagong, and then the Godel himself would then apply it as he saw fit. Uh, Different interpretation of Psukim you can have, contrary to what many people realize, the Rambam himself talks about it, that in different Doras, they can Darshim Psukim in different ways, okay, have different halachic uh, conclusions. Uh, I know many people find that strange. Uh, but anyway, and what happened was that eventually, for various reasons, it gelled into a, a different form where they started to put it together for a purpose of memorization or things like that into in the, the, the style that you and I call Mishnah. So it's Mishnah versus Medrash, but Medrash by that I mean that the Medrash by definition is based on the psukim, the mission would concentrate the information in one place, or at least it's supposed to. So, for example, if I want to learn Hilchah Shabbos, way back when, well, Shabbos is scattered all over the five books of Moses. So, when they learned the Pasuk Vayechul, they had one thing you could derive from it, you know? And then when they get to Shomr Nesos back in Shmos, a different way, and when they have Shomr, Siyom HaShabbos, and different things, to' it's scattered all over the place. If you do a missionary, you have a whole thing called the Shabbos, where you concentrate all the information in one place. It, theoretically, that's what it's supposed to be. That's dummy it That's the basic idea behind it. So these are technical questions. You see, these are technical questions. Now, the, what happened was that um, Hirsch died in 1888, but in starting around that time, so somebody from Lithuania, it's the guy Again, skipping a lot of details, he he didn't like the Hoffman approach. He thought you're too um, uh, 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 yielding, too much, including the the trade stuff in your hasharas And although he knew Hoffman's a from guy, there's no question about that. But Yitzhak had a very uh, big temper, and he ended up writing starting 1898 when he had to leave Lithuania, cause of business problems or whatever. And he wrote uh, the three, four volumes of the Doris Rishon, which is a, a huge attack, in a very uh, passionate and angry way, on everything I just said before, on Frankel, on on Gretz, on on uh, and on, on um, Rappaport, and the whole gang, and Isaac Herzog. There's a whole group like that, and on Hoffman, without mentioning his name, right? And which is a little weird because Hoffmans a from Guy. But the nature of Yusuke Azalei was very cantankerous and very bitter. He basically, like a guy, a barroom brawl, you know, break the bottle and start swinging. <laughs> uh, and it's very interesting. There was a big turnoff to the 3 d and to others, because how can you treat somebody like the WC album it was a big Sonic, you know, in such language? I'm looking. And a lot of what the 3 I I By the way, I don't want to go through... Uh, I did a, a, a... It's online somewhere. A... uh talk on the on this Duris It's in a uh, YouTube somewhere. Uh so I don't want to go into that. But basically the Duris claim claimed like this. Everybody's got it wrong and I only have it right now I'm going to Mikadish had a whole field of Jewish history is a bunch of bull. They're awful. There's nothing in Gratz and Weiss and any of these guys. It's all wrong. And they're so they're, they're so, you know, they don't get it. And I'm gonna be Mikhailish and show everybody how it really was. And he was a tremendous gom. He was a tremendous machadish. He was a brilliant scholar. But he got a lot of things wrong, <laughs> also. But this became the Yeshiva show, in history. Victor Miller is a fan of his. So he put out those books. If you want to read, re- through Sham, is almost unreadable. And the original, but if you get the Victor Miller books, you know, the, the Torah Nation and Exalted People and the other one. I used to teach from them long ago then you get, basically, the desert shun, but in, in chronological order and in organized English. Although, I must say, Victor Miller often quotes from verbatim. Okay? And uh, if you're interested in this, you who are listening out there, especially the American English-speaking readers, you will not really be able to understand what I'm talking about. You can get the first Mishnah from Hoffman, that's in English, and you get their Victor Miller books. And they go into the nitty-gritty of these questions of the formation of the Mishnah, whether you realize it or not, and it's a septa and the other things, and also the Gemara. So um, here you have the 3DH, for example. Um, there's a whole literature in this, so I'm just sharing you pieces of it. I mean, how much time do I have? Uh, where he has, So in no, other words, the 3DH went through all this, he knew it all, cold, plus. and he says what a lot of people said, which is, you're attacking Dobbsi Hoffman, but mainly you stole his clothes. Most of what you say is from him. I'm just reading you a line from over here, because it gives you an idea what type of person Dabat was. I'm quoting from the 3DH over here, where he says, Basically, his approach to understanding the Mishnah, meaning that it's in layers, and that it evolved, and it started sometime by the Shoshani period, little blob was added to, him, and all that stuff. He basically followed Big Vos of Shishim be Mishnah. You know, he also talked about an earlier version of the Mishnah, and then a later version of the Mishnah. I think I've told you this before myself. Let me make an aside. To my mind, here's the easiest way. Me, myself, and I. Here's the easiest way to figure this out. You look at the uh, beginning of Sachum. Everybody knows that. It says, uh, Let's see. Orla abbasar bokus zchamis laor neir, right? And um, they talk about. Well, let me get the Mishnah. Hold on for a second. I'm sure I must have done this in the past. But I'm to, to using a, a source that everybody's familiar with. It'll be easy. Listen closely. Orlar abbasar bokus zchamis laor neir. Okay, fine. Kol makon shem machnis bokhin sar Fine. Wherever you number comes, you have to make the Bidika, V'lo ma amru shtei shorim so why did they say you have to check state shorts b'marter? Two rows in the cellar. So you see, the Mishnah itself is referring to an earlier Mishnah. What do you mean, lama Who said shorts This is the Mishnayim over here. This is where it's starting. What do you mean? It says lama Amr shorts The text of the Mishnah that you and I have is obviously referring to Amru. Earlier they said so on and so forth. So in other words, there was an earlier version of the Mishnah which says, stay short And now our Mishnah, and, and let me put it this way, I'm giving you the firm interpretation. So in other words, the earlier Mishnah, which was much shorter, because there was a reluctance, Shviragon says, to add to the formal text of the Mishnah, because every time you add to the formal text, you take away the power of interpretation from the individual Torah scholar. That's a schmooze by itself. But, obviously, once upon a time, the Mishnah, it, the Mishnah, the Pesachim didn't say Orla Abosir or bothkin the Chamas Everybody knows that. I don't have to say that. Get it? There's no reason to put that in the Mishnah. Everybody knew that. The only thing was, where do you check? Okay. Now everybody knew Komo Everybody knew that. That's the From way. But there was an argument about the, the Shteishos from Martev. So that in the original Mishnah said. Something like shtei shorts from martev, and now later on, because the chalisha zedas, you know the iskat no that kind of thing, see so already had to add nebuch. We have to even tell people or oh, Our boss is comes to come, so that'd be later. And even on shtei shorts from martev, be sham yo mshtei shorts al penei kol martev be selo mshtei shorts chitzon There's already machlokes in the han be sham I repeat, be and be selo. Over the definition of state Shorts So those are the layers. Originally Sheyshurz Martiv. Originally, when they put that in, everybody knew what state Short Samartiv is. By the time you get to Beisham Baby's Hill, you know, the Gemara said they didn't learn enough and so forth. So they're arguing over what the definition of She Shorts Martiv is. You see? And so I'm just sharing that with you. I hope you follow what I said. Uh, I didn't lose you in technicalities. To show you there's a concept of layers in the Mishnah. And so uh, Halevi does a lot of that but he's following basically in Hoffman's policy but the only difference between them is that Hoffman says that the beginnings of this would be more or less in time of Hill and Shammai maybe a little later and uh, uh, and, and Yitzchak HaZegh Halevi say oh no it goes back to and because Hoffman didn't agree that was and because was and so forth, Halevi blasted him and so forth this is ridiculous that, that uh, Halevi doesn't have the same, uh, Messinus you know, uh, what's the right word moderation that is to say scholarly detachment, and you know, the scientific precision that Hoffman has. Hoffman, how you Hoffman was just as from, in terms of defending the Torah as Halevi was. Hoffman spent his whole life working on that, to defend that idea. And Hoffman spent all of his life writing these essays and things to defend against the non-from but defend it scientifically. In other words, to bring a raya, a proof that anybody has to admit is a proof. You understand? For example, what I just told you, well, must stay short you can't deny, nobody is denying, that that indicates that there was an earlier version called, stay short from our tip. That's just one example of many that Hoffman does. mode, uh, but nevertheless, he was a very... Careful! It's a hero's very careful scholar. Okay, uh, he wasn't into sharp forts the way Halevi is to attack the other guy. Excuse me. Every word that comes in an often essay is and He thought clearly and he chose his words. In other words, he was a real academic which Halebi was not. And he was used to writing with scientific precision. And therefore, that's where you get in his essays. So I would say for the American reader, modern Israeli reader, Hoffman is boring. Halevi is very interesting. That doesn't mean that one's wrong, one's right. It's like the tortoise and the hare. They say he's boring because he's exact. When you read the first Mishnah or the single Pergibus or the highest court or his argument about the Sriras of Omer or anything from Hoffman, it has a certain boring quality in my opinion. It's boring because it's very... Scientific and exact. If you read Halevi, oh, you dummy! You say this and shot. What about that Tosefta? You idiot! You know he a very interesting. You <laughs> understand? You don't. Uh, um, uh, what do you call? It? You're not going to prove the other person. And he goes on and on and on about this. He's often was at and he was interested in trying to get the scientific truth Mind you, he was a from guy, but he's trying to get the scientific proof. Therefore, his his works are accepted outside the from world and all the rest of it. And he compo- he opposes that to Alevi. That's in his essay called Shita Alavi Bechikra Mishnah. It's followed up by a separate one. I'm not doing justice to it. I'm just uh, whetting your appetite for those of you out there that are interested in following this up. You get the three D H, the third volume, where now they call Parshanut. Volume, and uh, it's very, very interesting. And he has another one called the Mishnah, where again he goes deep into Hoffman's thing. And by the way, he critiques Hoffman. And he disagrees with him in some places. He agrees with him in most of the places. He gets into the nitty gritty of this stuff. Okay, he has a whole section called Shitasa Shadarsu Hoffman Bishela Sidra Mishan. and it's very, very interesting. Okay, on these questions of the historical thing of the mishnah, all. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's late. I told you, see, it's so long. Well, I guess we're going to do Hoffman five. But I'll just make a start now to, to, to tell you a basic mahalik of his. Then I hope I'll be able to wrap this up in one more time. Uh, if you look, the Torah path for a front person was always there. Can we find... Uh, why would there be in the Mishnahist things that are that are not no gay anymore? I remember Hoffman would say, what's the oldest... Uh, layer in the Mishnah. Okay? What's the oldest layer in the Mishnah? And that would be things that were again once upon a time I'm not under anymore. Uh off the top of my head I remember the um uh, the what he call it called? The uh, case of um Dar Miklet. And um one second take it over here. Here I'm looking at how yeah, he yeah he mentions here the three days of Ooh. there are certain things in Mishnahis that for one reason or another doesn't mention and they're post-Korban but on the other hand you find in Mishnahis things that are not no gay anymore okay at the time of Mishnahis for example Pesach Mitzrayim Yerushus benus Tzlavchan, dini negaim lifnei matan Torah, Ilanos shematz Yisrael b'kni sas la'aritz, dini arim miklat bi'omos That's the best one. It's in the, it's in the Mishnayos and Makkah somewhere at the end, where it says that there were six arim miklat, three in the Ebrayarden, and three in Eretz Yisrael. Proper, that you know and I know, that the Jews conquered Ebrayarden first in the lifetime of Moshe. And after he died, that's when they conquered the other stuff. So one of the questions is like this. If somebody killed somebody by accident, it, 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 when Moshe was still alive, before Yoshua. So you had three Ari Mikla, the 40th year of Moshe, but you didn't have the other three. Are the first three operating already, even though the whole thing isn't set up yet? Or do you say it's a double or nothing? That the Ari Mikla are not Kole, they don't go into operation until all six are... Looking at the same time. It's a Machlokis. Now, Hoffman will say like this, first of all, whoa, that's really ancient. <laughs> here you have, a, here you have a, a, something in the Mishnah, is from Moshe Rabbeinu's time. And it's totally not Nogaya. So how come it still survives? It survived for whatever reason. Was you Are you telling me there was a Mishnah at the time of Moshe? So Hoffman will say like this, no, there wasn't, because he just, I told you, he went through a whole thing to explain how the Mishnah that you and I have evolved in the time of Lake and afterwards. So where do you get this business, this machlokas or whatever about the Ari Miklut? Which was only no a very short time, from the conquest at the time of Moshe in his 40th year, till a few years later when Yeshua and the Jews conquered the rest of Israel. I mean, the question about whether the first three count before the next three had a very small time frame when it was no So it's like, really... Fantastic. Think about that. So Hoffman will answer like this. He said, no, that was, it wasn't a form of the Mishnah. It was the form, form of the Medav form of the Medav And peace and Medav Shaloha end up in the Mishnahs. We work for literary purposes. I hope I made myself clear, but that's a fantastic, amazing insight. Halevi, for whatever reason, declared war on him for this. They said, no, it's not true. The Medav Shaloha came first and then come Mishnahs the other way around. This really has to do with how you understand what happened on Shabuos and afterwards. But I see I'm well over an hour. So um, let me save that for Hoffman part five, the last one. I find it interesting if, uh, if people are interested to if I can find a sponsor for this, for the last one. And that would be the other part of Hoffman, which is not only the historian of the Mishnah, which he certainly was, but even more importantly, in the world of scholarship, he was the big historian of the Medrash Halacha, of the Mikulto Sifer and Sifri, and maybe another Medrash or two that most people haven't heard about. That was, became his big specialty, on the Medrash Halacha, which again, according to him, was the form of the Torah Shabbat. So I'll end with this note. According to him, from the time of Moshe, Yeshua, and David HaMelech, and Shlomo, and all the way down the line, the Torah Shabbat operated and was taught. If you went to Yeshiva, right, according to Hoffman, you learned the Chumash. But as you learned the Chumash, you learned the Torah Shabbat on the Chumash. Now, there was no one way of doing it. You could have, for example, a Rebbe. Maybe I should save this for next time. And I'll save it for next time. So, um, this is, I've just, uh, as I said before, given you, scratched the surface of. W.C. Hoffman as the historian of the Mishnah. Uh, and if you're interested, I would tell you to, to look this up in this 3DH. There are other places on there also. Modern scholarship it disagrees with Hoffman. It was in the late 20th century, they're not interested in the 19th century stuff for a whole bunch of reasons. Right? Modern universities, they say all this 19th century stuff was based on false business, all the rest of it. They know about Hoffman, but you know they, they say, oh, it's from the 19th century. They're also not Doris from Kachma and the other guys say, so the academic study Mechkar of Gemara, Mishnah, and all the rest of it has moved past that. the The Yeshiva world still remains in a in a mode of uh, it's not no to us, We're not governing the whole enterprise, which is interesting. But some people are interested in this, and I guess that's the ones that would be the people who'd be interested in what I've been talking about today. Um, again. He would say like this, the Bible criticism is, is, is trafe uh, The Mara criticism, and I'm using the word criticism not that you're making fun of somebody, but the criticism, them, offer, uh, you know, objective understanding of the historical circumstance in which this was created, is not traif. Um And I think, it's just interesting to me, will the fact that the art school now put the shreer going out, uh, which will surprise a lot of people in what it says, Will this have a social impact whatsoever in the machshaba world of the yeshiva world? That's just interesting. I'll say it again. It's been around for for 1,500 years. But um, will this have an effect? That is something Hoffman himself would be very interested in. So I hope we'll find somebody to do one last piece. And um, with that, I wish you a good week as you get ready for Shavuos. And I want to thank once again the Mavorach family. Uh, for being interested in this. Not just sponsoring, but being interested in this. And I hope there are more people like David speak. Bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.